So, so. hammer me with your questions. <laughs> questions. Monastery questions. What to do with the obsessions of the mind? What to do with them? Well, what to do with them and the yeah confusion? <coughs> yeah, they do lead to confusion, don't they? Yeah. My my. Uh, one time, my ambition was to get a song to stop playing in my head. Have you ever had that? Where you get like, called like an earworm or a song when your childhood or something starts playing, you can't get it to stop. That was driving me mad. But the technique <coughs> that I learned on retreat is you just, you know, sort of surrender to the fact that it's there. Don't try to stop it. But pay really close attention to it. Just like stare at it. Really listen to every nuance and, and see if you can get it to sort of like slow down. But like go along with this fantasy story or whatever. Yeah, so, so, the, uh, so one of the things you're doing is you're, uh, by, by directing your attention differently, you know, rather than sort of like it's kind of playing in the back of your mind and you're not really terribly engaged with it, uh, or, or you're so sucked into it that you don't really even know that it's happening. Right? So what bothers us is when we kind of know that our minds are running and we kind of don't like it. We, like, we kind of wish they wouldn't do that. So we have, we have partial awareness that we're not fully aware and yet we're not fully asleep. We're kind of halfway in between. So when a song is playing in your head, you're just kind of humming along with it. You're just enjoying it or whatever. You're just kind of going with it. Then you're kind of like asleep. You're not you're not aware of what your mind is doing, and you're just buying into the content. When the song is playing in your head, you're like, I hate that song. You know, like you wish you kind of don't don't want to hear it anymore. Now there's like two minds happening. There's a, there's the mind that's playing the song, and there's the mind that notices that the song is playing. And it's worse sometimes. Well, it is. It's kind of painful, right? So now you're you're kind of in contact with the dukkha, but see, so you're closer to dhamma now, right? Because you're aware of the disturbance that the song playing in your mind is uh, causing or, or bringing the is causing to arise. So most most of the time, if something's happening in our minds that's bothersome, um, it's a little bit like something happening in the body that's bothersome. <clears throat> um, it happens more or less at kind of a subconscious level. We realize that there, there's some awareness that there's discomfort, and so. We, we just kind of adjust our posture to get away from it. We don't really think it through. We don't go, oh, there's discomfort. I could, dis I could adjust my posture, and that might cause it to go away. Should I or should We don't think like that. We just kind of, you know, we just kind of move. Right? It happens very kind of impulsively, very quickly. The mind does the same thing. So when something irritating is happening in the mind, um, if, if you're not fully aware of it, what it does is it's, it creates like a, sense of restlessness or, or, dis, or distress, and the mind immediately tries to make an adjustment to get, like, make, make things more comfortable. Just like, just like adjusting the body, you know. This doesn't quite feel good, so you make a little adjustment like that. So, so um, in order to overcome physical, in order, in order to overcome the tendency to be a, a mere um, response robot to discomfort in the body, some, a good technique when you're meditating is just to sort of make a determination to sit very, very still. And then discomfort will come, and then you just put your attention on the discomfort. And, in, and when the mind is concentrated well enough, you can put 
your attention on the discomfort and hold it there. Like, so your knees start to hurt. You can put your attention on the discomfort, and as you gaze at it with your attention, you start to see more deeply into its nature. At first, pain just seems, seems like a solid block. Your whole knee is just you know, pain. But when you really start to pay attention to pain, you'll notice that it has like, um, like a center and it has edges to it. Like there's, it doesn't cover your whole leg, doesn't cover your whole being. It's down here. Right? So you can see there's a boundary to the pain. And when you ask yourself, well, where exactly does a boundary start and stop? And how, is it, is it softer at the edges or is it a hard stop? Is there, or is there some kind of a gradient where the pain is more intense towards the center and softer towards the edges? And it, is it really the worst in the center or is there like a, like a halo around some sort of a, a blank spot? You kind of ask these questions about the exact location and structure and shape and intensity of the pain. And, as you pay really close attention to it with a concentrated mind, what, you, what you'll notice is that it's, it's nothing like a solid block. It's, you know, it's kind of shifting and morphing and coming and going. And there'll be moments when you're like, where'd it go? Oh, there it is. Like, it'll literally vanish from your awareness for just a second, and then it'll come right back again. And so uh, the closer you pay attention to it, the more you see it's anicca, nature. See, it's rising and passing away, and what we ordinarily take to be solid pain is a, actually a very rapid series of sensations um, that accompanied by an unpleasant feeling. And then if you put your attention on the unpleasant feeling, you can see that it's also kind of coming and going. Right? And part of, it's, part of what sustains it is the mind's reaction to it. So part of what makes unpleasantness unpleasant is the the, the mind's reaction to the unpleasantness is something that it, it pushes away or doesn't want. So, but when the mind is equanimous and simply gazes at the unpleasantness, then the, the, the impact of the emotional uh, affect of, uh, of I don't like it or it's unpleasant or it's hurting me, that impact also starts to lose its solidity. And, and when it loses its solidity, it loses its seriousness or its believability or its um, kind of like uh, the, the feeling that you know, uh, it's, it's compelling, right? So it no longer becomes quite so compelling. And when something's not very compelling, you can put up with it. So then you can sit there and put up with really intense knee pain as long as you pay really close attention to it. And as you do that, eventually it starts to become kind of boring. Even though it's the same intensity of pain, even though it's still happening, you, like your interest, you're just like, oh, it's, not that big of a deal. I'll just go back to my breath. Like you, you have that kind of maneuvering ability because you're no longer afraid of the pain. It no longer seems like a solid block. It, it loses it a lot of its... You're no longer intimidated by it. So exploring physical pain like that can be very, very valuable training for the mind. You can see uh, uh, presumptions built into the mind's relationship to that which is unpleasant, uh, which don't sustain themselves in, in, in the, uh, uh, when, when attention is continuously with them. One of the truths about the, our, this human condition is because we tend to move around really fast, we move our attention really fast, we see something we don't like it, we move our attention to something that we like. Uh, if something's painful, we immediately try to get away from it. Right? Because we never really stick with digging into something, we live 
only on the basis of our, or we live and we act on the basis of our presumptions about its nature. We think it's permanent, we think it's static, we think it's a solid block of pain. Uh, we think that uh, our attitudes and our beliefs and our opinions and our memories and everything else are real and static and solid and enduring and have an identity and so on. And, and it's because we've never really sort of like aimed our attention at it and just stayed with it long enough to see that it's, oh, it's kind of going to get going. And sometimes suddenly it'll vanish and something else will come up. And so when you actually try to see the static nature of something, you'll see that it's just an illusion. There isn't anything that that stands up to this constant laser-like attention for very long. And this is one of the things that Buddha's pointing to is the doorway to freedom. Now, anicca is one of the three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena. And that includes the conditioned phenomenon in your mind. So if you have a train of thoughts that's harassing you, um, one of the big disadvantages of, of a harassing train of thought is it prevents you, it stymies an effort to try to develop concentration. So it's kind of a catch-22. You can't get rid of the, the train of thoughts until you develop concentration. But you can't develop concentration until you get rid of the train of thoughts, right? So it seems like you're, you're kind of stuck. Um, and so you go, oh, I'm such a terrible, you know, failure as a meditator. I can't do this. So I should just, you know, maybe I'll become a Pure Land Buddhist and just, you know, re recite uh, you know, Amitabha and go to heaven. <laughs> uh, it's tempting. But really, the, uh, the way out is to work with what you've got. So if there's a song playing in your head, um, you know, you kind of go, okay, you know, song, we're going to take a close look at you. You, know, you kind of really just look at the song. You pay attention to the song. You listen to like every little, like every little rise and every little fall and every little melodial change and you tr you know you try to really kind of get into the every microsecond of it pay full absolute unbroken attention to it as closely as you can and don't and like you, there'll be like emotional reactions that are happening and you just kind of let that be in the background you're just like i'm going to really pay attention to this song just really and what will happen is like you know so say say it's a, a beatles song or something because you're trying to pay attention to every little tiny nuance, what'll happen is that it'll start to kind of slow down. So it'll have like a certain kind of pace like this, you know. And you start paying attention to it, and it's like, it's like, and then it happens like this. Because your, your mind is playing it back, and you're taking energy away from the part of your mind that's playing it, and putting energy into the part that's paying attention to it. And the part that's playing it has to play it at the rate that the attention is sort of taking it on. So that, like literally the music will change as you pay attention to it. And so then again you see rather than being this kind of fixed static thing that you don't have any control over, just by paying attention to it you're changing it. Right? And the more closely you pay attention to it, you can start to see the part of the mind that's maybe uh, obsessed with it or clinging to it or the memories that are underneath it or the associations that are, that are also there alongside it. And any one of those would also tend to change as soon as you paid attention to it with a, with a strong focus. And of course, what'll happen is you'll start paying attention to it, it'll slow down, it'll change, and it'll become this kind of like warped version of itself. And as you, as you notice this warped version of the song, you pay even more 
kind of close attention to the warping that's happening in the song. At a certain point, the song will just like stop, and you're like, you're just kind of paying attention to the silence between the words of the song. And then it'll start again, and then it'll stop again. And, and so it starts to become jerky. Right? So there's these pauses in between the individual words or notes of the melody. And then you'll realize that there's these longer pauses happening. So the whole thing becomes kind of like, it loses its momentum, it starts to break apart because under the pressure of your attention. And then you'll arrive at a point where it's just like silent. And you just listen to the silence. And as soon as you move your attention a little bit, maybe it's, the song starts to come welling up again, and you just look at it again. And so then, you, then you're kind of playing this little game with the song, and you kind of like whack-a-mole. Now, if you look over here, it starts coming up, and then you look at it and fades away. So this, this tendency for objects, mental objects, to fade away when you actually pay attention to them. Um, again, this is teaching you something about the nature of the mind, about the nature of attention, that you have to learn like intuitively. You can't, you can't really intellectualize about these sorts of things. You have to have these experiences where you see that by just directing your attention in a very uh, careful and uh, uh, volitional way, rather than having your attention be pushed around by likes and dislikes, by just sort of volitionally paying attention really carefully to, to anything, it, it changes the character of it. You've probably done this exercise where you like, eat, eat really, really slowly and kind of chew really, really slowly and taste the food very, very carefully. Have you ever done that where you're on retreat and they give you like one raisin? They say, yeah, eat this raisin, but like, you know, spend like 10 minutes eating this raisin. You know? You put it in your mouth and you don't chew it for a minute. So what raisin tastes like, and you slowly chew it. It's a really different experience than just like eating raisins sort of half half awake, right? Um, so you can appreciate the raisin more, but you can also see the nature, of the, like the, the game-changing nature of attention. Right? So attention is our our main tool in Buddhist practice. You can use it to. It's like a. It's like my uh, like, like my leather. Yeah? <coughs> use it to get a grip on something, or you can use it to cut through something. <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's it's a it's a very powerful. Um, uh, it's a, it's actually kind of amazing that that when the mind, especially when the mind starts to get a little stronger in terms of concentration, how how quickly it will discern the nature of something, see what's causing it, look at that, watch it crumble. And then just abandon the whole the whole notion and be able to move on to something else. Part of the reason that we pay attention to the breath is the breath because it's physically based. Um, for the most part, keeps happening even though you're paying attention to it. Whereas your thoughts, if you pay attention to a stream of thoughts really carefully, like a like like the example of the song playing in your head. Um, it'll it'll crumble under your attention. It'll just like you won't you won't be able to sustain interest in it, and the thought will sort of just like fade away, and something else will come up. The original thought that you started paying attention to isn't solid, and it won't it won't stay. It won't, it won't be able to refresh itself because you're just kind of paying this objective attention to it, listening to it, and it's a little bit like. Did you ever do this thing when you were a kid where you took a word and just said the word over and over and over again until it completely lost its meaning? Ever do that? If you've never done it, try, try it just like pick a word like pumpkin. You say pumpkin to yourself, pumpkin, 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 
just after about two or three minutes, this, this becomes this weird thing where you're saying something, you know it has meaning, but you can't tell what the meaning is. It's just like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're just <laughs> making this noise, you know? And it doesn't mean anything. So, so the, the meaning of the word pumpkin is something that's very dynamic. It, it's only there for just a, a flash in the mind, just quick enough to throw up an image in your mind when you hear the word or think the word. And then, it, you know, something else comes along and displaces it. So the concept pumpkin doesn't have that much solidity, especially if you start paying really close attention to it. Um, so just the sound of the word can't, can, can't sustain uh, all the concepts that are associated with, with the, that particular plant, uh, the fruit of that particular plant, the pumpkin. Uh, if you just keep saying the word, it just, it just crumbles, right? So that's a very similar effect happens when you point your attention at a stream of thoughts that are harassing you. And so that's a, it's a good technique to uh, practice and play with. And then you can use it to like look at your, your irritation and your sadness and your restlessness and your sleepiness and everything. Like everything can actually uh, benefit from this treatment. Being really, really carefully examined to try to see like when does it start, when does it stop, what's the message behind it, is it continuous, are there little breaks in there somewhere, um, you know, what's the emotional fabric that's associated with it, can I feel it continuously, is it continuously emotionally like that or is does it kind of have waves to it? You know, just kind of ask these open-ended questions about what's it really like? You know, and is it, is, it, is it stable? Is it certain? Is it continuous? Is it unbroken? Uh, or does it get interrupted? You know? And what's interrupting it? Maybe? So as you look really carefully at that, you start to see all these details that normally fly underneath the radar screen. And you just, like, you just notice there's something uncomfortable, and you're like, find me some way out of this thing. <laughs> over here, we can start looking for something to escape it with. Right? It's the same thing as just shifting the body in your own comfort. So it's a completely different strategy. Rather than running away, or, or turning and facing the song, or the, the thought, or the pain, whatever it is. And um, we're using the most powerful tool in our mental toolkit, which is where we point our attention. The fact that we can point our attention, this might be something which is uniquely human. Like, I don't know that like horses can choose to point their, point their attention at something sort of arbitrarily. You can guide their attention for sure, but normally that's all that ever happens to an animal's attention. It's just guided by its environment. So if they're afraid of something, they respond to it. If they see something that maybe might be edible, they go and check it out. They see their favorite human, they're very happy, and they want to come and play. But they, get, they don't, you never see like a, a horse deciding to like sort of follow its breathing or something. They, like there's just no, there's no cognitive way for them to arrive at that kind of, a, of an idea. So even though intelligent animals like dogs and dolphins uh, you know, they have they have some of the same sort of qualities that we have in our cognitive abilities. Things like some some degree of linguistic ability, the ability to understand words, the, the ability to form something like concepts, or the uh, uh, even the ability to think about the, the past and the future, to sort of see themselves in the mirror, recognize themselves, you know, that sort of thing. So they have a fairly advanced intelligence. 
But I don't think they have the ability to, to arbitrarily choose where to put their attention. Their attention just goes to wherever, whatever is the most prominent thing that's attractive to their attention or wherever it's being pushed. Sleeping humans are just like that. So like most humans are walking around in their lives and they're just kind of responding to their environment. They don't realize that they're, that they're this incredibly powerful tool of intentional attention is just available at their fingertips. It's just this close. But they they almost never they almost never take up the opportunity. It doesn't it doesn't seem that big of a deal. But it is. It's a total game changer. It's what Buddhist practice is all about. That's what you're doing in meditation. It's training that ability to point your attention, to be the one who's in charge. Rather than have your attention get dragged all over the place, you're saying, nope, honey, we're going to stay right here. Right? And as you get stronger and more powerful with that ability, it's called concentration, it's just the ability to stick with something and kind of like uh, know what's going on and, and stay, on, you know, stay on task. Um, the things that you can see that are happening in the biophysical cognitive organism, uh, they're really amazing. Things that you would almost never suppose could possibly be there. Uh, and you see it in real time in your own personal self or your own personal psychophysical organism. And then you don't have any doubt about whether it's true or not. And it's one thing to read about something in a, in a psychology tech, textbook. But to see your own, like the basis of your own neurosis, or if you've got some sort of uh, so you got like a little bit of Tourette syndrome or something, and you got like a little tick, or you know, every time uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 I had something like this, like every time someone said a curse word, you know, she, <laughs> 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 I was like, don't say, don't say something like that. And the uh, to actually examine that whole cycle of, of stimulus, impulse, action whether it's a mental action, a physical action, or a word, um, to see that happening in real time, see like the stimulus come up, see the, the discomfort that's there that needs to get relieved, see this active memory that this action is going to cause relief, doing that, and then feeling the relief that comes from it. The whole cycle just never gets examined in most people. But our, our whole mind, our whole mental life is made out of stuff like this. We're just constantly reacting to our environment, reacting to other people. Until you can get to the point of staying on task, mm -hmm. if if okay, so if the worldly worldly life is drawing you in, oh, and, no. <laughs> and if you're living in it, so it's mm -hmm. coming at you constantly. Yeah, comes at you fast, doesn't it? Comes at you fast, furious, <coughs> and, and it's it's very quick, and there's a lot of it coming. Yeah, it's like drinking out of a firehouse. <laughs> knocked over by it. Um, yeah, I just don't have the intelligence to put the fire hose down. <laughs> but if yeah, well, that's just your calm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's why you come to a place, come to a place like this, right? Yeah. So in, in in daily life, you have to more or less live by uh, like rules of thumb and so sort of heuristics, right? So that's what the that's what the five precepts are for. That's what the the, the, the main body of the eightfold noble path. And so in real time, until you're <clears throat> until you're practiced enough to be able to sort of stay with your life real time, uh, keep your awareness constantly under under direction, rather than just being pulled around mm -hmm. real time. That's pretty advanced practice to be able to do that. And most people, if they ever experience it, 
like a whole day of knowing what they're doing every moment. That almost almost only ever happens on retreat. Yeah. Right? So so don't like be down on yourself. What you do is you um, there's another very powerful tool that's available to people who are training their attention. It turns out you can also train your intention. Right? So you can do most everything that we do in our lives are based on intention. Even when you do something like that, you just kind of scratch your nose. You know, take a deep breath. You know, there's, there's, some, there's some stimulus that, that occurred in the mind and body that uh, provoked that. But the, the pro propagation doesn't happen in a complete vacuum. There's an intention to take a deep breath. There's an intention to scratch your nose. There's an intention to look somebody in the eyes. You know, the, everything that we do is intentional. Right? Even though we're not aware of the intentions, the intentions are there anyway. So all, all ordinary actions are volitional, you can say. Right? There's an intention behind them. The, the training helps you bring your intentions to the surface so you can see them more clearly. You, under, you start to understand how intention works. And so one of the one of the powerful tools or techniques in this training is to set, to actually consciously set intentions. And it's very simple to do. You just say, okay, today the only speech I want to utter is speech that is true. Okay? You set that intention. Beginning of the morning, you get up in the morning, like, no matter what else happens, everything that comes out of my mouth, I want it to be true to the best of my knowledge. I don't want to kind of hedge, I don't want gray areas, I don't want exaggerations. Just the straight up truth, total truth. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to say everything that comes into your mind. That's true, like, like you're an idiot. Yeah. You don't have to say everything. Um, but if you do choose to say something, only say things that are true. Right? Don't, don't deceive, don't lie, don't mislead, don't, uh, don't you know, sort of color. Uh, don't bias, just as true as you can say it. Yeah. And so you might find yourself actually saying a lot less because a lot of the stuff that you might ordinarily say would be maybe not 100% true you know, or, or um, like somewhat misleading, uh, somewhat, somewhat incomplete. Right? So the things that you actually can honestly say that are completely true and unguardedly true, un, unambiguously true. Um, Maybe there's that, that's not that many things that you have that you can actually say, especially like in sort of casual social conversation. Like, you know, you might say, um, someone might say, "It's pretty nice weather today," and if you say yes, you know, is it really true? Do you do you agree that it's nice weather? You know, <laughs> like maybe you think the weather's kind of crappy, but you can say it's kind of crappy. But it's like you might just have to kind of examine your speech, right? So if you say, no, I, like, this, this kind of weather doesn't agree with me, no, that's true enough, okay, you can say that. Um, but see, it, it makes you hesitate a little bit and examine your speech if you set the intention early in the day. Okay? If you never set the intention, then you just kind of just say whatever you usually say, right? Just sort of, someone says, oh, that's pretty nice weather, and you go, know, hey, it sucks, you know, or, or uh, no, I love you, yeah, yeah, very nice weather. So you're kind of like, you know, kind of uh, paralleling whatever they say, regardless of what you actually feel, right, in order to... Social. So you, you might not understand anything about your motivations when it comes to speech if you didn't create a guideline first of an intention. 
So you, you set an intention. And, and that's what I mean by heuristics or, or rules of thumb. You, kind of, you decide to live by the, the five precepts as best you can. And the way to do it, practically speaking, in real time, in, in your real life, is to set clear intentions for yourself. And then at the end of the day, you know, take a minute to see, look back at, over the dates, like, how did I do it? You know, I set the intention in the morning, and then you know, it was pretty good up until about 10 o'clock, and I went to that meeting, and, and okay. So, so then you just say, okay, that, you know, learn from that, next time I want to do better. And you just set the intention. You're not trying to, you're not trying to guard yourself every second of every moment, but, but just by setting the intention, what will happen is whenever you say something that's not true, part of your mind will go, ah, you know, you're not supposed to say stuff that's not true. Right? There'll be this part you're kind of like primed yourself to notice when you're doing it. Right? And that, that part that's primed will be kind of like watching over you. It's almost like you set up a guardian angel to watch over that one aspect of your life. Everything else you can do the way you normally do, you've decided this week to work on speech, for example. And then you can do the same thing with uh, saying things that are uh, kind, or you know, any one of the variations on, on skillful speech. Uh, same thing goes for action. Like, you know, today I, wanted, I want to uh, only conduct myself in a way that's either neutral or kindly. Right? So I want to use my body language, I want to use my, my, uh, the way I move my body in space in a way that's either neutral or kindly. I want, to be, I want to be friendly. I don't want to be aggressive. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be threatening. No, I don't want to be um, uh, you know, excessively assertive. Um, I'm just like sort of soft, reasonable, kindly, civil, friendly with my, with my action. And so when, uh, you know, if you're tempted to slap somebody, like, that's obviously not going to be something that you would do. Um, or or like, as, soon as, as soon as they leave, like, um, push their chair or something like that. You know, like any sort of expression of hostility, like you just decide to restrain it, right? Because maybe you see that's something that you have in yourself that isn't so great. And the way that you see these things in yourself is by, re by reflecting on how it went. Right? Yeah, yeah, the, rather than trying to make time to get into some sort of deep concentrated state, which is not that easy to do in real life. Uh, if you can, that's great, you know, I, I, I encourage it. But, but if you find that your practice basically doesn't really your lifestyle doesn't really let you get into deep concentrated states on, on a regular basis in your ordinary life. Don't just keep hitting your head against the wall. Right? Use the time that you set aside for formal practice to do things like reflecting, reviewing, intention setting. And that's kind of a virtuous cycle. As you, as you kind of get better at setting intentions and examining your motivations and getting feedback on how you're doing, um, then that those various guardian angels that you're sending over your mind, they become more and more natural, more and more part of your ordinary operating equipment. So then you're kind of always guarding your speech. You're always guarding your actions, and you're living by the you're living by the precepts in real time, not just sort of you know like there's this great uh, story that uh, I gotta steal it. Ajahn Jayasara. Just this is how ordinary people deal with mosquitoes. This is how Buddhists deal with mosquitoes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, what you're, what you're trying to 
to do is get beyond that, right? We, we, we want to prime ourselves so that we're, we're going to catch ourselves before we do something that we think is actually unskillful. Is that helping? Yes. And then, when you, if you do that, when you come to the monastery, you're kind of coming with a mind that's in better shape because of this kind of steady just inclination, this kind of, kind of leading in the right direction with your intentions, programming your intentions consciously. Most of our intentions are, are kind of what we inherited from our circumstances, what we what we picked up along the way. Are kind of they're, they're mostly just conditioned, and so what we're doing is we're we're injecting, uh, you know, uh, gotama style conditioning into our into our ordinary intentions and, and elevating them with this practice. So um, in, in our tradition, they call it setting determinations. You kind of determine a certain course that you want to follow, and then you try to follow it. You don't, you don't expect that you're going to be perfect. And that's not the point. You're not trying to perfect, even though they use the word paramis and they talk about the perfections. Perfection isn't required. What's required is a training of attention and intention so that uh, you can see the causes that, of suffering and find, way, find the ways to abandon it. Uh, perfection comes out of that process very naturally. You don't have to sort of force yourself to be perfect. You just kind of start leading in that direction, and you see cause and effect happening in your own mind, and you see what hurts, and you say, that, that hurts, I'm not going to do that anymore. And it's just very natural. It's like letting go of trouble. That's all you're doing. Letting go of trouble. But the only way you can let go of it is for it to become conscious, so you can see it, which is what this is all about. <laughs> Do you want to look at the sutta that we talked about? Oh, yeah. Let's have a look at the sutta. Number 49, was it? Thus have I heard. You know, all the suttas that start with thus have I heard are ones that supposedly Venerable Ananda recited at the First Council. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Got a photographic memory. Okay. I think it's page 407. 407? The greater discourse in the way, ways of undertaking things. So the setting is in the, the Sabbatia Jesus Grove, because for the most part beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Yet although beings have this wish, desire, and longing for, for unwished for, undesired, and dis disagreeable things to, I'm oh, sorry, I misread that. Yet although beings have this wish, desire, and longing, nonetheless unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now bhikkhus, what do you think is the reason for that? And then they go, <laughs> we're not really sure, <laughs> please tell us. 
Listen, Dickens, and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venable surely replied. And the Blessed One said this. Here the goose, an untaught ordinary person, who has no regard for, for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who does not know what things should be cultivated and what should, things should not be cultivated. He does not know what things should be followed and what things should not be followed. Not knowing this, he cultivates things that should not be cultivated and does not cultivate things that should be cultivated. He follows things that should not be followed and he does not follow things that should be followed. It is because he does not, it is because he does this that unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase man, unwished for, desired, and agreeable things diminish. Why is that? This is what happens to one who does not see. And then he contrasts that with a, a noble disciple who, of course, cultivates things which should be cultivated and does not cultivate things which should not be cultivated. And why is that? This is what happens. And then, of course, what happens, uh, the result of that is he follows things that should be followed. <clears throat> he does not follow things that should not be followed. It is because of this. He, he, uh, it is because he does this that unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things diminish for him. And wished for, desired, agreeable things increase. Why is that? This is what happens to one who sees. There are these four ways because of undertaking things. What are the four? There is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. There is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. There are things, there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. And there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. And so then he starts talking about who does what in these four ways. So of course, uh, he starts off with the uh, the next kind of the, the, the uh, less agreeable case. So he starts off with uh, a section called the ignorant person. And you, you could probably sort of fill in the blanks on this, right? So the ignorant person is going to do things that are pleasant now and ripen later in pain. Or even more ignorant would be to do things which are painful now and ripen later in pain. And you can sort of imagine what things would be like that. Like sort of like pleasant now might be like stealing somebody else's wealth and enjoying their wealth. And then later on, when the constables come for you and they put you in jail, there's the pain, right? So, so now, because one who is ignorant, not knowing this, uh, this is the way of undertaking things that's painful now and ripens in the future as pain, not knowing it, not understanding it as it actually is. The ignorant one cultivates it and does not avoid it because he does so. Unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for him, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. As this happens to one who does not see. And then he talks again about <clears throat> uh, undertaking, undertaking things that are pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain the same basic motivation. And then also that same ignorant person um, who is ignorant not knowing this way of undertaking things, that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure, does not understand as it actually is thus. Um, this way of undertaking things is painful now, but ripens later in the future as pleasure. Not knowing it, not understanding it as it actually is, the ignorant one does not cultivate it, but instead avoids it. Because of this, and wish for things increase for it in him, and wish for things diminish. And the same for uh, undertaking things that are pleasant now, ripen in the future as 
pleasure. So, and then of course the wise person does the inverse of that, right? He, the wise person does not undertake things that are going to ripen in the future as pain. He avoids them. Even if they're pleasant, he avoids them. And the things that are going to ripen in pleasure or, or you know, pleasant conditions in the future, those are worth undertaking and those are the ones that he undertakes. So then he gives examples of what the definition of a, a way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future in pain, as pain. Here, Bhikkhu, someone in pain and grief kills living beings and he experiences pain and grief and have killing of living beings as a condition. In pain and grief, he takes what is not given, misconducts himself in sensual pleasures, speaks falsehoods, speaks maliciously, speaks harshly, gossips, his covetous has in mind of ill will, holds wrong view, and he experiences pain and grief that have wrong view as condition. On the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. This is called the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. And then, um, here because someone uh, in pleasure and joy kills living beings and experiences pleasure and joy that have killing living beings, this condition. So he's talking about people who are either doing things um, out of anger and hatred, like sort of killing out of anger and hatred is, is like a kind of painful state of mind, and then you're doing something which is also going to result in further painful states of mind. Or someone who's sadistic, who takes pleasure out of killing, and so they get pleasure out of causing pain to others. And then, of course, that's still going to ripen and unpleasant. And the same thing goes for all the other uh, uh, forms of misconduct. And then, okay, and then, but what's actually um, worth studying is these ways of undertaking things that are uh, painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. And it's literally all those same things, but not doing them. Right? Just simply refraining from taking life, refraining from speaking falsehood, refraining. It's not talking about like spreading metta and all these other things. It's just like not doing stuff that's, that's harmful. Um, and then someone who does that, uh, on dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. And the same for someone who, who does all those same, abstains from all those same things that takes pleasure in abstaining from those things. So, so um, in one account, a person might find them difficult to do, finds them painful to do, to refrain from saying something nasty or something untrue, something that will to bear to one's advantage, uh, even though it's untrue, etc. cetera, uh, but forces himself or makes himself or herself do that anyway. Um, and then he uses similes to, to help illustrate it. Um, Dicker, suppose there was a bitter gourd mixed with poison. And a man came along who wanted to live and not die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. And then he drank from it without reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, the color, smell, and taste would not agree with him, and after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things as painful now and ripens in the future as pain. Suppose there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. So that's, that analogy is quite clear, right? So the, uh, the 
undertaking of things in the right way might not be fun, or it might actually be fun. And undertaking things in the right way, that, so this is one of the things that we emphasize a lot in this teaching, is that the, uh, the practice of generosity, uh, if you undertake it consciously and you try to, you try to conscientiously pr you know, practice acts of generosity, part of the mind resists, but actually, when you're actually generous, when you actually do something nice for somebody, or you, you give something, the mind actually feels lightened by it, or feels good about it. It feels, it feels nice, it feels wholesome, it feels good. It's pleasure, that's a kind of pleasure. It's not necessarily a gratification, in, like, in the sense of you know, getting what you want, but it is, it is pleasant. And it ripens in future pleasure because it creates good conditions for the future. Um, doing something like sense restraint might actually be quite challenging. That's part of this monk's life. We do a lot of what we, what you would call sensory strain. So that's uh, uh, not in, not indulging in things that that we're, we've we've taken taken on rules to not indulge in. So uh, obviously, yeah. beautification, entertainment, and adornment is one of them. But also any kind of sexual conduct, um, and a, a lot of the things that the ordinary world thinks is completely you know, sort of neutral, harmless stuff. Um, listening to the news or something like that, we, we like pretty much we don't we don't indulge in those kinds of things, or at least they're not uh, they're not commended. Um, there are there are areas where we just don't do things because it's uh, doesn't comport well with our 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 role in the world, even though they're not sort of forbidden. We still don't do them. And so there's, there's actually suttas in there where the Buddha talks about uh, development by, by avoiding, development by resorting. Uh, so like the things that you associate with and the things you avoid, um, even if they're not like sort of morally problematic, they're problematic for you. You know that they're problematic for your mind, and so you avoid them uh, as a way of protecting yourself, protecting your practice. Uh, so, for, like right now in our culture, it's like marijuana is like perfectly okay, but uh, I would avoid it like poison even if I was a layman, because right? uh, just no, it's not going to help my practice. Uh, and just know personally that that's the case. I don't judge other people necessarily for doing it, but you know, I, I, they're not going to get me to do it. So, uh, and there's there's a number of things that are like that. Or like, uh, mm -hmm. like um. I was in Mexico, and over there, like uh, a lot of the um, hallucinogenic. Yeah, yeah, they're into the. Uh, they they, they call it like spiritual, and he heals you. And uh -huh. <laughs> 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 Again, there's no moral quandary about that. Those kinds of things. As a one-off or like you know, experimental exploration. They're, they're probably basically harmless, right? They might even show you some things about your mind that you wouldn't otherwise see. Does it affect your mind, like your brain? Like, mm -hmm. they would make it harder for to meditate after? Maybe, like, shortly thereafter, but it wouldn't. It would almost certainly not affect your basic character or your basic calm, unless you abused it. And the abuse would be like doing it over and over. Um, kind of compulsively for a fairly long period of time to the point where it was interfering with your ability to function normally. 
in, in the world. But yeah, going off to South America someplace and, and doing ayahuasca in some village, it'll just be an experience. It becomes a memory later on. You look back and go, oh, that was really weird. <laughs> and maybe you saw a spirit animal or something. Some, some jaguar came and you know, licked your face like on ayahuasca. And um, the shaman might like interpret that for you or you know give you some instruction or whatever. But um, again, those things, as long as you don't undertake under the influence of it, you don't sort of go down an unskillful path or you're experimenting with more and more uh, strange things and you're kind of abandoning a normal, wholesome course of action of, of life, uh, you know, it's, it's just going to be, it's just an experience. I am, I, I never done it because I'm scared it'll cause damage to my brain I don't know can it? well you know I think that a lot of us have things in our psyche that we don't really know about and so it's good to be cautious um, it's like if you uh, if you come from a family of people with uh, weak heart heart valves you know so it's really good to be really super cautious about Dental surgery because heart valves can get infected by dental surgery. So we take extra precautions. Maybe uh, prophylactic antibiotics whenever you go into the dentist, something like that. It would just be wise because you know about your own condition. Yeah. But if you're, you know, if you're sound of mind and body, and you take one of the kind of more or less mainstream hallucinogens. Um, you know, you do it responsibly with a, with a very modest dose in a, in a good setting with with a supportive in a supportive environment. Then you'll just have an experience. You know, it'll be but every once in a while, there's a tiny little percentage chance. It's like every time you get in the car, there's a small chance that you'll be in a car accident. Just statistically. So if you if you uh, take mind altering substances, there's a small chance it'll alter your mind in a way that's. Uh, Sticky, right? I mean, might, well, actually, everything everything you do alters your mind permanently. <laughs> so when you uh, when you taste a new fruit, you know your your mind develops a memory, and, and that's now it's permanently altered. But whether we create a permanent dysfunction, again, that's pretty unlikely. But you know, it's, it's a non-zero chance it, it could happen. So erring in the side of caution. I can I can commend that I, I, I'm a fairly cautious person myself, and so far it hasn't you know, it hasn't been a problem it hasn't, got, it hasn't created problems for me. I just didn't get to hang out with the cool kids in school. <laughs> with the cooler kids now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell, like, do you know a technique? You know how you practice um, listening, like attending to your uh, perceptions mm -hmm. um, to become aware of the awareness, like you repeat to yourself, who is listening, who is knowing this, you know, like to understand that everything mm -hmm. happens. No, I know that thing, not listening. Okay. So, <laughs> how do you... <laughs> How do you expand that? Like I can do, like I can see, I can see that, right? Mm -hmm. So I can do that in practice, but it's limited still to um, to my environment. Like for instance, I was I've been thinking if 
we talk about who is listening, right? There is no one listening. There is just awareness and everything is happen happening in the awareness. When somebody comes in, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here meditating. Somebody comes to the, uh, to the field of my awareness, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference? Where's the line between if that person is also just a manifestation of awareness that everything happens? Is everything happening in their awareness or is just a collective awareness that's happening everything's happening there you know how mm. yeah i think you might be making this a little more hypothetical than it really oh, is this is, a, <laughs> this is not unusual um there's a there's a bit of a um uh, kind of a bit of a mental stance almost that you you find when you try to practice with these things. And so the question like who is who's who is seeing or who's aware of seeing, etc. Who's aware of what's happening at the sense doors? Is a way of trying to get you to, to find that stance, to find that place to stand. Um, awareness is like consciousness. We kind of know what it what we're talking about when we use those words. But if you try to define it like, well, awareness is, you know, talking in circles, well, awareness is consciousness knowing something. Right? Or, and then, well, what's consciousness? Well, consciousness is what awareness does. And then, well, what's knowing? Well, knowing is what consciousness and awareness are, have as their common. And so it's like there's these undefinables that we have to deal with because we're dealing with things that are not concrete. <clears throat> so when I say, like, right now in your awareness, um, you can point your attention at, say, the weight of your body on, on your bum. Right? You can sort of feel the pressure that's there. Okay. So then you can point your attention at your knees. And then you can attend to the, 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 the pitch and timbre of my voice. And then you can hear the silence in between the words. Okay. So you can kind of, you know, the, the awareness is very kind of flexible, very pointable. Um, or you could say attention is very pointable. You can aim it at different things like a, like a flashlight. But awareness is, is the uh, recipient of what attention is pointing at. Okay. So, so if attention points here, attention is this beam of, of, of light, as it were. And then the, the part of the mind that knows what's there, that recognizes it and starts processing the information that's being provided by the beam of attention, um, and maybe it's generating, maybe there's uh, thoughts and memories and associations that are generated because the beam of attention is pointing over here. Um, that's all happening in this field of cognitive theater, if you will, that we're calling that whole theater awareness. So <clears throat> when, you're, when, when you include in awareness the quality of your mental processes, so like the quality of pointing your attention and noticing that your attention won't stay there, it kind of drifts around. You know, oh, it's over here, and you, know, you pull it back. Right? So now you've got not only the, the object that you're pointing the attention at, but you're also holding in awareness the, how steady the beam of attention is. And so if, if you notice that your attention is kind of wavery, then that's, oh, that's awareness um, also holding that in, in, in uh, the content of the mind, in the theater of the mind, it's, it's one of the things that's, that's present uh, for inspection. Right? So you can go, well, how steady is my, my attention? I'm going to point my attention over here and see how steady is it now. 
and then you can like, you can notice oh, I'm kind of falling asleep and I'm like you can sort of feel like the lights going down and things getting dimmer. That's a that's awareness of dimness, right? So there's another cognitive quality of the mind that awareness can't hold or where that can be on the, on the stage available for inspection. So these examples give you a sense of what awareness is and the fact that the mind can inspect its own function is awareness of awareness. You're going to be aware of how aware, how, how clear your awareness is or how broad your awareness is or how, how inclusive it is or how many objects are in it or how complicated it is or how bright it is. Right? So all these possible ways of sort of talking about um, how, the, how well lit and how clear and crisp the objects on the stage of the theater are. So, uh, now the stage of the, th the theater that you're able to inspect is pretty much just yours. Right? So, someone, some, someone else comes into the room, they're bringing their own internal theater. Now, you might both look at this and end up with that on the stage of your theater, but for the other person it might be really peripheral, and for you it might be the thing that you're really focusing on, so it's taking up the whole stage. And you might, and they might not be doing anything in terms of inspecting their intention, or their attention, or their mood. They might have no awareness whatsoever, no kind of conscious awareness of the quality of their, their cognitive processes and or their emotional state. But you might be fully aware not only of this object, but all those other qualities of mind at the same time. So, so, so one awareness is bright and broad and inclusive, and another one's kind of dull and vague, and mostly because the Persons engaged with a lot of distracting thoughts, which are dispersive kinds of an energy in the mind. So that's one of the problems with discursive thought, is that it tends to scatter uh, the beam of attention, so that it can't really focus on anything, it can't stay with something. And then when the beam is held steady, because of the, the, the amount of distraction goes down, what appears on the stage of awareness, or the possibilities of what can appear on the stage of awareness, gets bigger. So your awareness becomes like this larger and larger bubble. It turns out that ordinary discursive thinking, thinking about yourself, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, having random thoughts come up in your mind, memories and associations and intentions of things you've got to do in the future and things that you forgot to do, blah, 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 all this stuff that goes in our head, that's taking up like 90% of your mental capacity. And so, when you, if you can shut that all down, you've got this tremendous resource that you can apply to just knowing what's actually happening in real time, not only in the physical environment, but in your mental environment as well. So, this training is actually mostly about being able to quieten the, the, the noise generators in the mind, take the extra resources that have been made available by that process, and apply them to inspecting the mind's own content and the mind's own processes, and then tweaking them to make them better. Ordinarily, they're just kind of what they are. We used to accept our, our we accept our mood as just like a given, uh, sort of unchangeable thing. Uh, we, we accept our attitudes, we accept our beliefs, we expect we kind of accept our opinions as just being you know, a fact of nature. We don't really think, oh, I should go in there and just kind of turn that one down a little bit, move this one over here, and um, I really don't like that one at all, I'm just going to pitch that one. And we, don't, we don't ordinarily think of the content of our minds that way. But that's what you find out when you actually have it all in your awareness. You see, oh, concentration is this thing that the mind can do 
it's a factor of the mind, and there's certain things I can do to sort of turn it up, make it make it more powerful. Um, having a sad mood is optional. There's an off switch here. I'm just going to go ahead and turn that off. <laughs> yeah. So so. You know, when you see the mind is like this big kind of control panel where it's got knobs and switches and things, you can turn things on and off. The only way you can do that is by having <laughs> like the cabin light inside the cockpit on. And you can't see the control panel unless you can actually uh, inspect it. And there's got to be a light that's available to see these things with. You know, that light is awareness. And most of the awareness is scattered all over the place because of the ordinary noise generators in the mind. So, uh, it's, it, it is an interior process. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and part of this kind of comes back to what you were wondering about, is as we become more clear about these cognitive processes, and we see their, their impersonal nature, their conditioned nature, um, the idea that they, they belong to us, or that they're ours, or that we are them, uh, becomes less tenable. becomes more, more it's like seemingly likely that maybe the Buddha's right about like even consciousness is not self, right? It's like you know, that's pretty sounds pretty crazy at first, but then when you start to see how the mind works, you're like maybe you're right. Um, and then when you when you start to when the mind starts to get really finely tuned, very very sensitive to cognitive processes, you start to get a, kind of this hint that other people's cognitive processes are impinging on your cognitive processes. And that your cognitive processes are impinging on their cognitive processes. Like your calmness can spread to other people. Their anxiety can invade you know, your space. Even though they're not even in the same room with you. Right? They can be in a different part of the house and you can sort of pick up their mood. You know? uh, this is one of the great things about being on retreat. It's like everybody's focusing hard and they're very motivated. And that helps everybody focus hard and be very motivated. And it's kind of this collective consciousness that grows up. And even if you're like you're lazy and you're unmotivated, you can't help it. You start becoming more diligent because it's all these diligent people around you whose diligence is like so seeping into you. Now, is that because of social cues, or is it actually some sort of mystical mental force that comes and penetrates our? I don't know. It has the same effect. You can think of it as, as if it were um, <clears throat> a field of collective consciousness in which we're all participating. Um, and philosophically, it's kind of problematic because it's it's you know heavily smacks of dualism, which is not really something I want to go into too much. But the uh, the kind of as if aspect of it, um, like it's as if we're all sharing consciousness. We have a, a huge chunk of it that we're just sort of personally in charge of, and that we're able to guide and point and refine and fine tune. Um, and then there's other parts of it that are just sort of part of the environment, like air and clouds, uh, that we're just in. Right? So if there's a lot of uh, you know sad and happy people, um, it's going to affect your. It's going to affect you. Now, what's uh, and the closer they are, like the closer physically they are, the more effect they're going to have on you. Part of the reason the Buddha keeps recommending spiritual friends and spiritual companions, right? and hanging around with people that are diligent practitioners and it just makes you a more diligent practitioner. So it's, it's a, it's, we're taking advantage of a natural process. And the exact mechanism, we don't really have to, we don't have to have a firm grip on that in order to, to exploit it. We can still take full advantage of this, of this, uh, this process because it works. Um, 
And then, of course, if you, if you, uh, if you allow the mind to speculate, you can take that and go, well, maybe, the, maybe this collective consciousness is the place that individual consciousness is returned to after death. And then, you know, what is the comma It's like it gets really kind of, you know, you don't really want to go there. It's not, it's not profitable to, to speculate about that stuff. But if you do get up to say, oh, stream entry, non-return, you know, once return, so you get up to non-return, right, in terms of your, your degree of enlightenment. And you get really interested in the psychic powers, because the Buddha talked about psychic powers a fair bit. You know, recollection of past lives and seeing how Kama, how Kama works for other beings, seeing how one's own Kama works. Um, you see the rising and passing of beings in the different realms, seeing the different realms, seeing gods and devas and stuff like that. It's kind of cool. Maybe you spend some time doing that. But don't, don't waste any time trying to do that until you get to like that stage, because um, there's a lot of work to do in order to get to that stage. You don't have a lot of time for a big detour trying to see devas, you know. Um, it's not to be recommended. Some people do it naturally. They kind of like, they're, they're children, they see devas, and then they see devas when they're adults. But most of us don't see devas. And, uh, the, the, the advantages of seeing devas over not seeing devas, uh, not a lot there. I kind of think of like uh, being able to see devas as like being able to, uh, I don't know, do partial differential equations in your head. <laughs> you know, maybe if you're an aircraft designer or something, it's nice, but most of us just don't need to. You know? It's just not, not going to make your practice different. No, it wasn't my intention to yeah. see devas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're, you're kind of tuned into like the, the Collective consciousness that's shared between human beings and I think it's part of it is because um, when you start actually to experience that, like the as you were talking about that, the concept of anatta becomes more clear, mm-hmm. and then, um, then, like next thing I was, of course, I was thinking about that. Um, so then, when there's no self, so there's no other also. So then, there you go. then what happens? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, since your consciousness is not yours, her consciousness isn't hers either, right? So, there, but the there's uh, a very interesting, um, worthwhile to explore aspect of these teachings about anatta, anicca, uh, and dukkha. But anatta particularly, because that's where most of the paradoxes come up. Um, you know, typical paradox is. Uh, uh, what is it? It's a Sinbad's, Sinbad's ocean-going ship. You know Sinbad. Sinbad the sailor, right? He's got an ocean-going ship. So if Sinbad's ship comes into the and they, they change a bunch of deck boards because they're rotten, and then he goes out sailing again, comes back, they have to change the sails, and he goes out sailing again, comes back, and they have to change the masts. But every time he goes out, it's still Sinbad's ship. You know? After enough trips, the entire boat has completely been changed. There's no, there's not a single plank or nail that's the same. Is it still Sinbad's ship, or where's the original Sinbad? Is it the same ship, or is it a different ship? Right. So this this notion of the identity of the ship is something that the mind is imposing on phenomena. Right. It, the ship itself doesn't have an identity. The mind simply sees one there. So uh, as the mind is a, is a kind of a real magician, its ability to see identity, to 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 impute agency where there is no agency. Is it, it's amazing, it's, it's, but and it's 
it's a um, it's mostly you could say uh, extremely evolutionarily efficient to have a point of view that's that's individualistic. It's kind of a single point of view that looks out at the world and has a, an interior and an exterior, because then defense and uh, nutriment and raising the young and reproduction, all that kind of stuff, much easier. And if <clears throat> to, to have that kind of point of view, strategizing, thinking about the future, protecting resources, competing with other groups. Um, the hunter-gatherer tribes that didn't have individualistic selves that were all looking out for number one or looking out for the tribe, um, and they all died out. So, so this is a this is part of our evolutionary heritage is to have this point of this strong sense of self. A well-developed sense of self is a, is a uh, like an adult capacity that one has to develop in order to uh, flesh out one's one's psychic potential. And then seeing through it is part of what the Buddhist point to. Uh, if someone tries to see through it before they've really developed it, then they could have like a, a case of a, a kind of a crippled development. So it's not, advanced Buddhist practice really isn't suggested for people who haven't got strong, really strong ego function to begin with. But people who can like hold a job, hold a marriage, um, you know, kind of function well in life, they've got good enough ego to practice if they want to, for the most part. But coming back to this, this question about who, you know, whose mind is it, or what is, you know, who does it belong to? The, the question of who is coming from the, uh, the kind of unexamined understanding that every process has to have an owner. It seems like it does. Right? Um, so like, uh, to, to whom do those clouds in the sky belong? Uh, we, can, we can sort of say, well, they, they kind of belong to nature, and allow that to be like an open-ended uh, who's nature. We don't, we don't really need an answer to that. We're just saying, well, they're, they're just clouds. They're, they're a natural process that arises due to causes and conditions. The sun shines and it evaporates water, and the water goes up in the atmosphere, and then they condense and it creates clouds. And so we understand like how they come about. And they don't seem like they belong to you. There's no wind, like wind god who's fabricating clouds in some factory somewhere, giving them all names and sending them off into the, into the atmosphere to float around and, 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 and trance us. Right? Um, and our thoughts are the same way. Right? The, the mind produces thoughts the same way atmospheric produces clouds. Uh, it's, it's just a natural process. <clears throat> but we have such a strong intuition about agency and about identity that we almost can't see the processes of our minds as though it doesn't belong to somebody. Uh, here's an example. <clears throat> if you look at my hand, there's no you don't see any particular agency there, but if I draw a little dot on it, and put some lips on it, you can see now it's a puppet. Right? I mean, like, it, 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 your mind will kind of sort of see there's a little guy there now, right? Um, and it's only because of, there's this, a dot, you know? There wasn't any dot, it doesn't seem so much. It just seems like I'm holding my hand in a weird way. But there, now it's a face, you know? So we see faces where there aren't any faces. We see agency where there isn't any agency. Uh, our minds are programmed to, to interpret things in those terms because it's very efficient, right? You say, oh, like, if, like I remember being in engineering school, we were <coughs> uh, working at this company in, in uh, California. We'd have a problem with a circuit somewhere. 
we pull out a big circuit diagram and start kind of tracing the individual signals to see if we can figure out what's going wrong. And we talk about it in terms of uh, persons. We say, okay, well, this guy comes in over here and he goes down here and he talks to that one. And, he, and so then he reacts and does this and this signal goes over here. And you know, so we're talking about beings kind of doing things and making decisions and going places. None of that, of course, is happening, but as a, as a way of talking about the circuit, um, everybody knows exactly, we can all follow it, we can keep the logic of it, we can keep the relationships in our minds, because our minds are built to think about social relations that are made of individual beings. And so for most of human history, people look at the clouds moving across the sky, and it seemed like there had to be somebody who was moving them. They couldn't just be moving, like by, or, or they, had to, they themselves had to be deciding to move. Right? If you're deciding that the clouds each have their own agency, they're choosing to move. Even uh, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, when he figured out the laws of gravity and, and why he came up with formulas that explain the, uh, the orbital paths of the planets. And then someone asked him, well, why did they, you know, why did they follow those orbital paths? His explanation is because they want to. Right? Or, or they're, they're commanded by God to do so and they're obeying God. But, but he couldn't think of it in terms of like just a natural process, which is completely impersonal. Right? Because even, you know, at the time he's like one of the great mathematician scientists of our history. But uh, like everybody else of his era, uh, the idea that impersonal forces acting in an impersonal way uh, seems really kind of, kind of hard to wrap your head around. So it's bad enough to think that the planets are completely impersonal just sort of falling. They don't, they don't have any reason to do what they do other than just the laws of physics. But uh, it's even harder to think of our minds working in that same sort of impersonal, natural, ownerless way. So then we're always asking questions, well, okay, so if I make some comma, who is it that inherits the comma after I die? Like, who's, who is it that's reborn? If, it, if rebirth is true, who, who gets reborn? And it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, it, the, you can say that it's a propagation of the same illusion. It's one, maybe one way of answering it. The, the habit of seeing self is what gets reborn. <laughs> But, uh, and so because of the habit of seeing self, what gets reborn is suffering, suffering and, and karma. Um, so is it the same self? Well, you know, the Buddha's always going to say, no, it's not, it's neither the same nor is it different. The two can't really be separated. So the, the, the place to, to it, uh, one of the great suttas, I can't remember which one, but one that really sticks in my mind is this teaching. Uh, Buddha says, basically, anybody who really sees the passing away of phenomena, they see like thoughts completely pass away, you know, the sensory contact completely pass away, even for just a brief second, anybody who really sees the passing away of phenomena um, cannot subscribe to the idea of permanence or, or uh, identity, because identity pres presumes some sort of static existing thing that, that remains the same over time. So anybody who presumes, who sees this really clearly, the passing away of things, um, cannot attest to anything being eternal. And uh, anyone who sees the arising of things from not so like seemingly from nothing, but sort of the arising of phenomena, the arising of thoughts, the arising, etc., um, uh, cannot attest to the annihilation of things. So. There's this, there's this kind of dualistic view of the world that either nothing exists or everything exists. And so this is one of the debate topics that we come up with the Buddha a lot. And 
he's not saying that nothing exists, because saying that there is no self is, would be like saying nothing exists. So there is no self. It's not something the Buddha ever says. Right? He never says that there is a self. Right? It's because anybody who sees the vanishing of the aspects of the self can't say that there is a self. And anybody who sees the self arising can't say truthfully that there is no self. Right? So neither one of those extremes, there is a self or there is not a self, neither one of those is true. What's actually true is due to causes and conditions, due to contact, uh, um, uh, there is feeling. Because of feeling, there is uh, pleasure and pain. Because of that, there is uh, thirst, there's tanha. Because of that, there's grasping. And on account of grasping, there's becoming. Because of becoming, there's birth. Because of birth, there's aging and death. And this is the whole mass of suffering. So he's talking about the arising and passing away. So that's why in the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, when Venerable Kondanya gets it, the phrase is, he knew everything that has the nature to arise has a nature to pass away. It seems kind of mundane, but it's actually incredibly profound when we apply it to these inner processes that are happening. The, the illusion that we sustain of agency and identity are based on perception of staticness that simply isn't there when you try to inspect for it. And that's part of the reason that we're training our minds in this way. So I was, earlier I was talking about using the non-static nature of, of mental objects as a way of relieving yourself of a song that wouldn't stop playing in your head or obsessive thoughts that you wish would stop. Um, so you can just point your mind at it and watch it vanish if, you're, if you build your concentration a little bit and just stick with it. You can actually do this. You can sort of nail individual thoughts and just cut their, cut their feet off. And they'll stop. Um, it takes practice, but it, it, it's true. That's what happens. And that's pointing to the very profoundest depths of what the Buddha is teaching. That there is this phenomenon that happens in our minds, and it doesn't have any static nature. And that means that this self that we think we are doesn't have a static nature. And yet it's a self that suffers. Right? So seeing really deeply into the nature of the self is seeing deeply into the nature of Dhamma, what the Buddha is teaching, uh, the Four Noble Truths. Right? The self is like right at the nexus of it, because the self is the subject of suffering. Right? In a way, when you, when you let go of grasping, you're letting go of grasping at the self uh, as a static entity. And when you let go of that grasping, there's no one there to suffer. And so there isn't any suffering. But there's still, there's still mind arising, there's still emotions arising, there's still sense contact arising. There's still all these things happening. And so, so from the outside, there's still a functional being. But an arahant doesn't have an inner sense of someone who's there. So, kind of, kind of spooky. <laughs> but what's, what's amazing about it is that that's one of those things that's it's true whether you believe it or not. Right? And, and most people just choose not to explore that or, or challenge it or try to, try to look carefully at it. But you know, it's, it's a little bit like physics knows, uh, people who study physics know that this solid object is mostly made of, of vacuum. There's basically 99.99999% nothing there at all. Okay? The, but the electrical forces that it's made, that its uh, atoms in, in, are involved in, 
and the electrical forces that our bodies are involved in create this, this perception of solidity and, and structure and permanence. But at, a, at an atomic level, there's pretty much nothing there. I mean, saying that there's nothing there is really, really close to the truth. But our perception is there's something really, really substantial and solid there. But this doesn't change anybody's world, you know, to know that sort of intellectually. It's just a big deal. Like it's, 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 it's solid, you know, <laughs> there it is, right? So saying that it's mostly vacuum doesn't help anybody. It doesn't change anybody's pers uh, uh, experience of the world. So when, but when you actually get into your own mind, you see it's constantly arising and passing away nature, and kind of the deeper parts of your psyche you work out the implications of that, it, it changes your worldview in a very profound way that's positive. Uh, it's, the, it's the dispelling of an illusion, an illusion that creates a lot of trouble that you can do without. Uh -oh. Who's the me that can do without the trouble? <laughs> Another one of those, those ponderous questions about, about the self. So the, the questions about the self become uh, irrelevant, I guess you could say, or, or non-applicable non, non uh, when, when one sees this really, really clearly. Um, it becomes much more straightforward, you know, like how things work, and why we suffer, and uh, you know, what's, what's the best course of action. What should I do? It's, it's dead easy <laughs> when, when, when the mind starts to see how this how this really works. But until then, we have to we have to really rely on sort of trusting what the Buddha is teaching us, uh, taking on the, the practices very very sincerely. You know, the Eightfold Noble Path only leads one place towards freedom. It's a, it's a uh, the single track road you know, has a single destination. It's not a whole bunch of diverse possible destinations, it's just a one. It's awakening. So that's why we follow it. The Buddha called it the highest happiness for a good reason. Yeah, unshakable peace, and it's really, really good.